uh, cut off early, but that's okay. I know, that's the exciting part. It's like the best part of the whole movie. I love that song. It may not be a Christmas movie, but that is what I wanted to play. So I played that. Good morning. Welcome here. Second weekend of Advent. As we did the reading and we lit the second candle this morning and we continue on in our Advent series of the Songs of Christmas. We're on our second song, that's right in my face, our second song, Mary's song, although it actually happens before Zachariah's song that we did last week, but fair enough, John the Baptist came first to prepare the way, Zachariah's song is preparing the way for Mary's song to this series, so we're going to go with that. So we're going to look at Mary's song. Robert Tannehill compares Mary's song of praise known as the Magnificant, to an aria in an opera. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen an opera, or if you particularly enjoy opera music. It's kind of an acquired taste, I think. So I don't know how many of you know what an aria is. I only know the word because the crosswords I like to do on my iPad often use this aria because it's got a lot of vowels, A-R-I-A. But Robert Tannehill apparently likes operas because he uses that analogy to explain it. So an aria is this time when the singer steps forward to sing their solo. And it's important to an opera because it lets the composer stop the action at any point so that the poetic and musical development, he can use it in ways that exceeds the possibilities of ordinary life to give a deeper awareness of what is happening or what may be achieved. Now, this exceeds ordinary life because if you were to go through in your ordinary life in your grocery store and just stopped and decided to bust out an operatic song, people would look at you weird. You would not give a deeper understanding, just more confusion. So it exceeds this ordinary life. But many of us probably aren't into opera, so let's maybe use a little bit of an easier analogy. Like TV shows or movies that break the fourth wall. The character takes time to stop and address the audience through a monologue to give a little bit more understanding. It's also often used in plays uh, through monologues. And just like an aria apparently is the highlight and most memorable part of an opera, monologues often are the most memorable part of a play. To be or not to be, that is the question. Everyone knows that line from Hamlet, and it's in Hamlet's monologue. The clip we just watched from Fiddler in the Roof, a movie from a play, from a book, does a similar thing. Right at the beginning, we see this fiddler playing on the roof, and our main character, Tevye, that's my great Hebrew right there for you, comes out and he starts explaining the metaphor, setting the scene and foreshadowing what is happening in his village that I'm not going to try to pronounce. The metaphor throughout the movie is this fiddler on the roof. And Tevye steps forward and says, you might say that we're all fiddlers on the roof. Though this village has become dangerous for them to live in because of the, ooh, lights, the increasing 
hostility of the Russians towards the Jewish people living there. They stay because of their tradition and help with their tradition. Just like the fiddler on the roof playing their instrument on the roof is quite dangerous. He could fall and hurt himself. He keeps doing it because of tradition. The Magnificat plays a similar role. It comes in the midst of our narrative as Mary steps forward to give significance of the moment and give significance of the things that are going to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning, this season, this Advent that we come and remember you coming and breaking into our world and giving us hope and light in our darkness. Lord, we pray that through this song of praise that Mary offers us that we can see who you are this morning, to see why Mary was praising you and see why we can praise you today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open with me to Luke 146, where this song starts. And the song takes place in the middle of a story that we all know so well. Even if you weren't raised in church, or if this is your first time stepping into church, you probably know the nativity story, the story of Jesus' birth. The angels have come to Mary and have told her, that she is going to have a child, even though she is a virgin. Now, this has some serious social implications for Mary, none of them particularly good, because outside of this one occurrence that the Bible's telling us about, we all know how babies are made. They all knew how babies were made, and doing that outside of a marriage was a huge no-no in this society. The very least, you are a social outcast. At the most, you are stoned to death, according to the law of Moses. And we see this as Jesus is out ministering and an adulterous woman gets pulled out in front of him. He's drawing in the sand. They say, we caught her in the act of adultery. The law tells us to stone her. And Jesus delivers his famous line, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Mary was facing all of this as well as she knew that this had every chance of ruining her relationship with her fiancé, Joseph. Matthew tells a little bit more of Joseph's side of the story in chapter 1. It says, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph was ready to break off that engagement. It took an angel coming and telling him not to do it for him to not. If he broke off that engagement, it would leave Mary in a hopeless state. With a child, she was likely to never be married. And being unmarried woman in that time meant you had nothing. Homeless, with the only ways of making money 
either begging on the street or through prostitution. Mary would be well aware of all of this. And yet with great faith, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. She then runs off to see her cousin Elizabeth, whose miraculous conception and birth of John the Baptist we heard about last week. And everything the angel has told Mary is confirmed by Elizabeth's cry. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. Then comes Mary's aria, our beautiful poem of what is to come. And now this is a poem, a poetic song. And when you talk about poetry in a classroom, usually it's met with groans and sighs. But don't worry, you don't have to write poetry today unless you feel really inspired by Mary's song. But we need to recognize that this is poetry. Because poetry wants to work on our emotions. And if we miss that, then we miss the full power of it. And they are using these poetic devices for the particular purpose of working on our emotions. So with that in mind, we're going to read the song. Feel free to follow in your Bible on the screen or close your eyes and listen to Mary's song and try to see the emotion, try to feel the emotion that she is portraying. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down the princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. The poem can be split into two parts. The first from verses 46 to 50. The second from 51 to 54. The first half is setting the tone of the poem and focuses on what this act means for Mary herself. Mary, who is facing an unexpected pregnancy, becoming a social outcast, and a possible ending of her relationship with Joseph, opens with these words. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The first couplet, these two lines... Establish a mood of praise and celebration, despite her circumstances. The beginning of this poem really wants you to know that despite the despair that this situation could cause Mary, she is celebrating praising God with great joy. She's recognizing the great work that the Lord is doing through this. It uses what's called a synonymous parallelism, which really wants you to understand that this is a praise poem. It's often used in Hebrew poetry. Basically, she's saying that she's praising God two times in a row using different words. If you were to do that in an essay, they would say to narrow it down. You can only get away with this in poetry. I am well aware of that. Many times I get the comment, be more concise on my essays. I'm sure David can tell you the same thing with history essays. 
but in poetry she can get away with it. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. She could easily just skip to the next couplet. How my soul praises the Lord, for he has took notice of his lowly servant girl. But she wants you to dwell on that. She uses this parallelism because we're forced to take twice as long getting hit with this mood of celebration than we usually would. She really wants you to know that she is praising, even though everything in the world tells her she shouldn't. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She says, my Savior. She recognizes that she needed a Savior. Just because she is the mother of the Son of God doesn't make her righteous. She knew that her role as mother was under that of her son's role as savior of the world. She was included as one of the sinful in the sinful world that needed her son to die for her. She knew that she was going to bend her knee and confess her son as Lord. Parents, could you imagine doing that to your child? (laughs) Bending down before them, confessing them as Lord? The kids are like, yes, right now. So they're feeling. But she recognized that she was going to do that, that her son was so much more righteous than she was. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary calls herself a lowly servant girl, or in other translations, as we read this morning in our Advent reading, God has looked upon her humble estate. We use the word humble to mark a low rank or status, which it often is. But we usually use it as an attitude. We think of ourselves less than we actually are. But for her in the Greek, it isn't just a low, humble status of being poor, but humiliation. It is translated, this Greek word, tapionosis, Elsewhere is humiliation or vile. It speaks more to how her actual status is. In society, she is humiliated because she is a pregnant, unmarried teenager. It's much stronger than just the humble attitude that we think in our minds. Being humble is a good thing. Being humbled sucks, (laughs) but being humble is good. For her, it's humiliation. But God, through her humiliation, has noticed her. He has looked upon her humble estate. And through this humiliating circumstance, he breaks into the world. For the Mighty One is holy, and he has done great things for me. God is holy and mighty. Mary makes this might and holiness seem even larger by placing these two lines after the previous, comparing God's holiness and mightiness to her humiliation and lowly servant status. It doesn't make God any holier or mightier. just makes it a lot more apparent. It's like taking Shaquille O'Neal, who is a massive guy, and placing him next to Kevin Hart, who is a very short man, which I think we have a picture There you go. It makes Shaq's height so much more apparent 
doesn't mean that by standing next to Kevin Hart, Shaq has all of a sudden grown taller. It's just very apparent of his size. But when he plays Shaq next to Yao Ming or Pau Gasol, he doesn't seem so big now when he's next to someone who's taller and about the same size as himself. It's all a matter of comparison. Shaq hasn't shrunk. He's still the same size. It's just not as apparent that he is a massive, massive man. It's the same thing. Being next to the unmarried, pregnant teenager, God seems holier and mightier than if he were to stand next to a righteous king. And by magnifying his mightiness and his holiness, she magnifies his love. He has done great things for me. Only the mighty one can take this humiliating situation of Mary and turn it into a blessing so great that thousands of years later, we still call her blessed. It is only by her faith in the mighty one to do what he has promised that she is able to sing this song despite her circumstance. She knows that God loves her so much that even though he puts her through this situation, he knows she knows he's going to bless her and take her through this. The one who is so mighty and holy meets a lowly servant girl and causes her to be called blessed in all generations. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. These two lines round out our first part, or strophe is the poetic term, in case you want to know more poetic terms. It starts the transition into the second strophe. God shows his mercy to those who fear him, who revere him. Our second part is going to switch to looking to how God and what God is going to do for those who fear him and those who do not. Mary begins to talk about what God is doing through this act to all the world. She goes from what God has done for her to what God has done for the whole world. And just like Zachariah's song, which I listened to it, I was in source so I didn't hear it live, listened to it and was like, Brad, you took one of my main points. It's all in the past tense. As though it has already happened. It shows her great faith in God, her supreme confidence that he is going to deliver on what he promises. Jesus' conception is just the very, very first step on the road to the cross where Jesus says it is finished. But at this first step, Mary speaks as if it is finished already. The mighty one will not fail to uphold what he has promised to the world. And then we go into our second part. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. Haughty, however you say that word. She switches to speaking of others instead of herself. Expands the types of people she is addressing. She introduces, introduces that God's action isn't just for those who are humble but is against those who are proud. God is reversing the world order. It's a celebration of God's justice. Those who are oppressing and are unjust and are in power 
are being brought low by God, and the oppressed and those of humble estate will be raised. Throughout the whole song, we see Mary's deep knowledge of Scripture, but especially in the second part, as it's strongly reflecting many of the Psalms, many of the poetry of Isaiah, the poetry of Ezekiel, and Job. Psalm 89.10, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Psalm 118.16, the strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. Isaiah 51.9, flex your mighty right arm, rouse yourself as in the days of old when you slew Egypt, the dragon of the Nile. Full of images of God using his mighty arm to bring down his enemies. And as we see throughout the prophets, his enemies are those who oppress the poor and commit injustice. And then we hit the climax of the poem. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We know that this is the climax of the whole story because it uses in each couplet, each two lines, an antithetic parallelism. And the two couplets together form another synonymous parallelism. So many of you probably just heard blah, 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 or the Charlie Brown horns going off. But an antithetic parallelism is similar to synonymous parallelism. It's talking about the same event, but from two different perspectives. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. Are two different perspectives of this reversal of world order. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty are the same events from two different perspectives again. This again is forcing us to dwell on this idea longer. And then you put those two and both those couplets are saying basically the same thing. It's the climax. She's using two devices to make sure that you spend a little bit of time more than you usually would on this idea that Jesus is coming and turning the world upside down. It could easily just be said he's brought down the mighty from the thrones and we can assume that the humble will be lifted up. But she wants you to dwell on this point. God is turning the world upside down. Jesus comes and he turns the world around. His culture believed that if you were sick or crippled, it was because you and your, or your parents sinned. So this was God's judgment on you. But God comes in Jesus and heals the sick and the crippled and the dying, removing this judgment, forgiving sins. They believe that if you were rich, it means you were righteous and blessed by God. But Jesus comes and says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So shocking was this that his disciples said, who then can be saved? They believed that if you were righteous, you, you would never be around the sinners, the tax collectors, the poor. But Jesus spends his ministry amongst them, eating with them, befriending them, associating with them. The Son of Man has no place to rest his head. His Sermon on the Mount revolutionizes 
all of their religious beliefs. You have heard it said, you must not break your vows, but I say do not make any vows. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say do not resist the evil person, turn the other cheek. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The whole world is flipped upside down and Mary sings this in her song before the Savior is even born. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful for he has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. She wraps up her song again, remembering God's faithfulness, the promise that he has kept and he has made to Abraham centuries, centuries earlier and has kept reaffirming with Israel throughout their history despite their failure to hold up to their end of the bargain. And this is all now being fulfilled in this child in her womb. At the moment of conception, God begins the final fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Israel. Through them, all nations will be blessed. Ultimately, Mary praises God for two things about his character. The first one is that God is faithful. Her whole song is in the past tense. Just by starting the act of salvation, she considers us all saved. The promises that have been continually made to Israel are finding their fulfillment. Promise Abraham to make him into a great nation through whom all nations would be blessed. He renews that promise to Israel in the wilderness as they're leaving Egypt. He sends prophets to call Israel to repent and turn back to God, the God who will bring down their oppressors and raise up the oppressed. All this finds its fulfillment in Jesus. This baby in the womb of Mary will create a new nation, the church, and will bless all people through this nation, through this church. And this baby will turn the world upside down. God is faithful to his promises. It took centuries of Israel waiting and waiting for this, but it's fulfilled in Jesus. God is faithful to his promises, and we look forward to the promises that he has left us. The final fulfillment when Jesus returns, we inherit eternal life, and we can be assured of that. And praise God for that because he is faithful. Like Mary, we can sing of it in the past tense. Because God is faithful and he will complete it. The second character of God is that he is mighty. And goes quite well with God being faithful. God can use anyone and anything to fulfill his purposes. But he prefers to use those of the humble estate, so that his might and his glory and his holiness may be magnified. He uses the pregnant virgin teenager to enter into the world and leave it never the same. He uses the cross, an instrument designed to bring pain and shame to the one who is hung on it, to save the whole world and bring them back to himself. 
Many of you may feel like you're in a humble state, a humiliating state, a state in which you feel like you cannot be used for anything. But God can use you for something. In fact, he prefers to use you for something. Because he wants to display his might to this world. This world in darkness that really needs some light and some godly might. God wants to use through those of humble circumstance. It's about making yourself available. Mary, this unmarried teenager with great faith says, let what you've said be done. She makes herself available for the spirit to move in her and create the savior of the world. It's about offering yourself, despite your humiliation, your humbling circumstances, to step out and let God be faithful to his promises in your life and for God to use his might in your life.